You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by American Postal Workers Local 67 and Communications Workers Local 6360. American Postal Workers, we sort the mail every day and we remind you to register to vote and to support causes which help working people. And CWA Local 6360 represents workers who build and maintain AT&T's communications network and 911 dispatchers in Jackson County and Independence who make sure citizens get the life-saving help they need. Local 6360 also represents union printers and screen printers in Kansas City and St. Joseph, as well as technicians at Mood Media. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, We'll find out what it's like to work and support your family as refugees in your own land. We'll talk to a Palestinian who grew up in a refugee camp on the West Bank and an expert in Palestinian labor about jobs, wages, and war. Then, on December 1st, the UAW was among the first major unions to join the call for a ceasefire agreement in the war on Gaza. Since then, many unions have come out for peace. Why is this war a labor issue? In the news, unions grew last year, but density actually dropped. And how much do you need to earn in Kansas City to have an adequate standard of living? Now for the news. Now for the news from our side, February 1st, 2024. Last week, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics released its annual report on union membership. The good news was that in the private sector, 191,000 workers gained union representation. The bad news was that what's called union density, the percent of people in the workforce who are represented by unions, didn't improve. In fact, it went down, but that's because the workforce grew faster than unions did since the economy created a lot of jobs last year. The number of union workers employed in the private sector stayed at 6% of all private sector workers. Those unionized workers were concentrated in a handful of jobs, including utilities, transportation, 
and warehousing, educational services, and movies and sound recording. As for wages, union workers all always make more, which is the result of collective bargaining over wages as well as what kinds of jobs are unionized. Among full-time wage and salary workers, union members had medium usual weekly earnings of $1,263 in 2023, while non-union workers had a medium usually usual weekly earnings of $1,090. That's a difference of $173 a week. The Economic Policy Institute, or EPI, has developed a family budget calculator for every county in the United States. EPI's family budget calculator measures the income a family needs in order to attain a modest yet adequate standard of living. The budgets estimate community-specific costs for 10 family types, one or two adults, zero to four children. Uh, compared with the federal poverty line and the supplemental poverty measure, EPI's family budget provides a more accurate and complete measure of economic security in the United States. To take one example, we pick Jackson County, Missouri. The annual income they calculate for a family of four with two parents and two children for a modest standard of living, there is $99,298 per year or $8,275 per month. That's figuring $1,109 a month on housing $1,043 on food, $1,425 on child care, and $1,403 on transportation, $1,502 on health care, plus a few hundred for other necessities. Of course, Jackson County's cost of living is low compared to Brooklyn, New York, which comes in at $143,293 annual income necessary for a family of four. There are much cheaper places to live, too. Take Cameron County at the tip of Texas, where you can live on 76641 a year. Find your best deal by going to epi.org slash resources slash budget. I bet you all are wondering where that money is if you live in Jackson County. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. In the second half of our show, we'll talk about the growing numbers of unions that have called for a ceasefire in Gaza. So far, unions representing over half of U.S. union membership have done so. The list includes United Electrical Workers, the United Auto Workers, SEIU, the National Education Association, the Communications Workers, National Nurses United, the Postal Workers, Painters, and United Food and Commercial Workers, and just today, the 1.7 million member American Federation of Teachers called for a ceasefire. That the AFT joins the list is notable as its president, Randy Weingarten, is an outspoken supporter of Israel, married to a rabbi and a member of the Jewish Labor Committee. Weingarten and the AFT issued the following statement. The time for war is over and the time for diplomacy must begin. We believe wholeheartedly that the path forward in the Middle East must end the decades of conflict and bloodshed by recognizing the rights of both peoples and affirming a two-state solution. Our work does not stop with the resolution. We will not shy away from continuing to listen to our members and our communities and endeavoring to move towards a lasting peace. 
While she didn't mention the word genocide, this is a significant change. That's the news from our side. The news tonight was read by Michael Savoir. Charles Morty Mortensen, who says hi to his mom, and I'm Judy Ansel. Hi, this is Judy Ansel. Since October 7th, when Hamas launched its brutal attack on Israel, and Israel retaliated with what many are now calling genocide against the people of Gaza, normal lives stopped. That's not just true for the people of Gaza, where the death toll is approaching 27,000 and exceeds 30,000 if you count all the bodies buried under the rubble, and where the work of staying alive is all-consuming. But even normal life under apartheid, if that's ever normal, on the West Bank, where three and a half million Palestinians live, came to an end in October as well. The West Bank has been occupied by the Israeli army and an increasing number of settlers who have usurped the land for decades. Palestinians displaced by Israelis from villages where they have lived for centuries were pushed into refugee camps. One of our guests tonight lived in the Aida camp where, since the war began, 50 people have been detained and one teenager killed by Israeli forces. How do they survive and work? And what is life like under occupation is our subject tonight. To tell us, we are joined by Suhaib and Leila Aze, who live in Kansas City and are active members of the Palestinian peace organization called Al-Hadaf KC, a local community organization dedicated to the realization of a free Palestine through educational initiatives and political engagement. Suhaib grew up in the Aida refugee camp near Jerusalem He's a co-founder of Al-Hadaf and an activist for the liberation of Palestine and Palestinians' right of return and self-determination. Leila Aze, who is married to Suhaib, is on the board of Al-Hadaf. She's a native of Kansas City and has worked for a human rights NGO in the West Bank as a staff researcher and served as their international mobilization coordinator. She has a master's degree in development studies from SOAS, University of London. Her master's thesis discussed the exploitation of Palestinian migrant workers in the Israeli economy during the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically through methods of restriction of movement and intense securitization under the guise of protection. I recorded this interview on Tuesday. One thing I learned about the work of Palestinians from the West Bank who get permits to work in Israel or in the settlements that are on the West Bank is that they are not covered by labor law and have no unions to support them. Saeed Zayn, who lives in the Aida camp, said, Aida is a graveyard of dreams for Palestinians. Here's my interview with Suhaib and Layla. Welcome to the show, Suhaib and Layla. We're going to start with you, Suhaib. Can you talk about growing up in the uh, camp in um, Palestine and the West Bank and tell us about what it looks like, how many people live there, is it crowded, and a little bit about what you experienced. Absolutely. So, yeah, my name is Suhaib Azza from Aida Refugee Camp. It's located north of Bethlehem, uh, where Jesus was born. I want to start by saying it's still baffling that we still have refugee camps exist in 2024 now. Growing up in the camp, we thought it was normal growing up as kids, but when you realize all the, the the reality and the facts involved and what's been happening, it puts a huge stain and it shows the brutality 
uh, and the kind of colonization occupation that we're dealing with. Maida refugee camp is a little bit over 0.027 square miles in terms of how big it is. Or that's small. like a few, that's a few blocks, right? I would say it's probably just one block. Oh my gosh. Okay. So officially recognized by the owner law, um, 7,100 refugees living in Ida camp, but not all the refugees are registered within the owner law. So realistically speaking, we're talking about 7,500 living in that very small and geographical location. It is surrounded two and a half ish part with apartheid separation wall that was built by the occupation in 2005. And looking at it, for us, we view it as essentially a waiting station to get back to our uh, homeland, our stolen villages and cities that we were displaced forcibly in 1948 by the Israeli occupation. So this place is very dense and uh, you have to build up because there's no place to build out. And are there gardens? Do people grow food there? Uh, there's nearly none open spaces or yards or backyards and we don't have the space to expand horizontally we just go vertically and uh, plus if there's an open space 90 percent of the time we're not allowed to build because of the occupation in several instances where you build they come demolish it or they demand you demolish it because okay. you have to get a permit so uh, you have to get permission from the israeli government in order to build but technically, you're under the Palestinian Authority, aren't you? Correct. Yes. So, Nakba 1948, occupation. And then fast forward to 1993, where the Palestinian Authority was under, was taking control of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Not to get into a lot of details right now, but they essentially divided the Palestinian controlled areas into areas A, B, and C. And each one has its own rules and who controls what between military rule, civil rule, Palestinian only, or occupation Zionist Israeli only but all of that is essentially disregarded because they treat every single inch of Palestine as they wish they occupy it they go in and out as they please even though it's technically under Palestinian authority so the Israeli military can come in whenever they want how frequently do they come in and what do they do there they come in almost every day they're infamous for coming in at night, three, four o'clock in the morning. They raid the camp. They terrorize the Palestinians, uh, kidnap, detain, um, and even get to a point where they shoot or kill Palestinians just because they can. And even they treat it at, to an extent as a training field where they bring all the new 16, 17, 18-year-old soldiers to train them how to shoot the tear gas canisters, for example. And that would happen either daytime or nighttime. I can't imagine there are very many jobs there available for, for the people who live there. Within the camp itself, it's not. Uh, so reality in the camp on the ground, there's not one enough space to even have a business. There are a few, mainly two or three kind of business that you can open in a refugee camp. Uh, the most common to is small, tiny, mini grocery store or uh, a bakery. Within our camp, there is five or seven, I believe, uh, small grocery shops. And then there's only two bakeries. And usually those are family owned. So you'd have uh, family members running them and it doesn't really take a lot of work for us to run them. Usually you'd see one or two people uh, in those yeah. kind of businesses, but the rest have to seek out work and jobs outside the camp. Okay. And so that takes me to you, Layla, because this is something you really studied. 
and wrote your master's thesis on, right? What jobs are available to uh, Palestinians who are living in the West Bank and how do they get permission to to get those jobs? About 20% of the employed uh, workforce in Palestine is employed in the Israeli economy. Um, so whether that be in Israeli settler colonies that are throughout the West Bank or inside historic Palestine. Palestinians are employed heavily in very specific sectors, primarily construction, um, agriculture, and then certain service industries like catering and that kind of thing. And they're controlled by, like, their access is controlled to those sectors by what is called a permit regime. So Israel has a really extensive bureaucratic process for determining what Palestinians get access to the Israeli economy. So we already know the Palestinian economy is severely constricted. Their work, their labor force has relatively nowhere to go um, within the Palestinian economy. So that forces them to seek employment outside, specifically in the Israeli economy. Israel kind of treats workforces like a surplus labor reservoir. A reserve labor force. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Call them when you need them. Otherwise, throw them away. Exactly. So when there are um, deficiencies in the Israeli workforce, they can supplement it with cheap Palestinian labor, um, one that's no longer needed, or in periods of tension, like right now, they can turn it off. And there's kind of a two-way street to that. So um, not only are they able to control how their own economy is is doing, but they can also de-develop the Palestinian economy at the same time by doing so. So yeah, primarily construction um, and agriculture, where those those jobs come from. And the permit regime really acts as a control, not just for you know economic access, but also uh, for securitization purposes. So Palestinians are forced to submit themselves to multiple different layers of surveillance and security um, checks throughout the Israeli administration, going so far as downloading apps to their phone that give access to literally everything, including their camera, including their text messages, anything that's downloaded, et cetera, um, outright. And so so this, is, this is a total surveillance state for anybody who wants to engage in any kind of meaningful occupation. They have access to everything you do. Is that correct? Absolutely. For just having the um, initiative to apply for a work permit, right? So that's not even guaranteeing that you gain that work permit and get access to the Israeli workforce. Or, okay. Um, okay. So let me interrupt you. Say, okay. So, so say you're a construction worker and you get a job outside of the camp that you live in and you work for, is it a big corporation, a small corporation? Generally, what, who do you work for? So usually it kind of depends, right? If you get your work permit officially, it gives you access to working for these large businesses and then these smaller employers. Typically it's smaller employers. There's also a black market for these permits and those are exclusively utilized by smaller businesses, smaller like uh, daily work jobs. Um, so do these, do these, is this like Home Depot here where, you know, like a contractor drives by and finds a bunch of undocumented workers and picks them up for a job? Is Is that how it works? Unfortunately, most Palestinian migrant workers are day laborers. So yeah. they, okay. once they get their permit, they go to the checkpoint, they do, you know, wait several hours, sometimes get turned away, sometimes to get through, and then they wait at the border. And sometimes their employers will come pick them up, sometimes they won't. So it's highly unstable, you know, precarious. So you work one day and you don't necessarily the next. Okay. Right. No regular jobs. No. 
Okay. Typically. And how much you get paid for this? So Palestinian workers make 50 to 75% of what their Israeli counterparts would make. Those official numbers kind of fluctuate based on how the Israeli market's doing in those particular sectors. But historically, construction, agriculture, service work, low wage work, and then you cut it in half typically for Palestinians. Okay. I can't help but observe that the Israeli labor movement must be very weak if they can't stop that because it, they they certainly would have an interest in stopping it. It must undercut the wages of Israeli workers. If it were utilized in a way where um, it was free access all the time, again, it's a tap. When it no longer suits them and serves their economy, they, it, they turn it off. Um, and these are typically undesirable jobs where they they need the work anyway. So what we're seeing right now, they've rejected all Palestinian permits outright. This is because off. of the war. Correct. So after October 7th, or let me say before October 7th, you had about 160,000 Palestinians from either the West Bank or Gaza working inside the Israeli economy. On October 7th and afterwards, all of those permits were cut off. So you had Palestinian workers from Gaza stranded um, in both mm. the West Bank like settlement areas and inside historic Palestine. Many of them were arrested and detained and then later dumped at the at the border in terrible conditions. Human Rights Watch has reported ter- like torture of these workers while they were detained and since dropped off. And then you have Palestinian workers who have been cut off from any opportunity for work. That's about, like I said, 20% of the employed Palestinian labor force but that's also, you know, about 30% of the construction labor force in the Israeli economy. So that it, you know, you've kind of got the situation where you know, Palestinian workers are 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 vital in a way to certain sectors, but also can be easily um manipulated and exploited and kind of just like dismissed. Dismissed essentially, yes. Okay. Um, and now and- of course I've heard that they're trying to bring in Indian workers, despite protests from the Indian labor movement, to fill these jobs because they don't want to employ Palestinians anymore. We're talking to Suhaib and Leila Asse of Al-Hadaf, a local Palestinian organization. And we're talking about work in the West Bank under occupation. Suhaib, you said to me earlier that uh, you can leave the camp in order to go shopping, but... You also said that the amount of calories that Palestinians are allowed is controlled. How does this work? So for the for that specific one, it's controlled in the Gaza Strip. Oh, that's just the Gaza Strip. Okay. So they literally count how many people live in Gaza Strip and how many does it take, how many calories does it take for a person to survive? And based on the little numbers, and they determine how much food and goods go to Gaza Strip, and uh, again, that was before October 7th, before this whole thing. Now there's no food. Correct. So on a normal basis, Gaza would get in five to 600 uh, trucks uh, worth of food and goods uh, that would cross into the Gaza Strip. Uh, But now since the genocide started on October 7th, they have gotten total of, I believe, between five to 600 trucks um since october 7th till today people are literally starving and there is no access to um well, people didn't even have access to clean water before 97 percent of, of palestinians in gaza did not have access to clean water before this now almost 100 percent. and then two there is a major 
lack of, of food uh, for nearly 2 million people because all the aid and food trucks are just literally sitting outside in the desert because the occupation won't allow them to go in despite the international law and the International Court of Justice and all the human organization and the calling for the aid to be allowed in. Now, for the West Bank itself, uh, on the other hand, it's slightly different. The uh, import and export are uh, slightly better in a better situation than the Gaza Strip. But since October 7th, it's a decreased course that also gets into the ability and right to free uh, movement. So before uh, we were allowed to go between the camp to go grocery shopping and get supplies for the house and whatnot uh, to the center of the city, or if we have to go to a different <clears throat> city, we have to pass again several checkpoints before the aggression and genocide started. There's a little bit better chance of you going through, but still have to go through the checkpoints. Uh, but now all the major cities' entrances and exits have been blocked by the occupation. Uh, the adjacent villages and camps have been blocked. You cannot freely move between cities or villages without being stopped uh, by the Israeli occupation checkpoints. And that puts a huge uh, impact on whether workforce, people don't want to get to their jobs or even schools, uh, commuting between cities or villages or camps. So most of the shopping now is being done either within our local small grocery shops within the camp if we have to go to the city center, but we cannot freely exit the city. Are there settlements around the camp? There is uh, There is a lot. So there's three main settlements that surround the camp. The name is Efrat, Gilo, and Asion. They Are these new or old? They keep expanding. Okay. <laughs> so from the day they started till the day they keep expanding and you keep seeing newer and newer and newer units. And even it gets to a point where they're not, just settlements, there is these outposts where they're not fully recognized by the Israeli government as an official settlement. But yeah, they keep expanding. And I think 23 witnessed the biggest expansion of settlements within the West Bank. We have roughly more than 650 settlers living within the territory that was supposed to be controlled by the Palestinian Authority. And as they expand, they're displacing Palestinians, right? Correct. Uh, so so one of the, the major jobs of outpost, that's how most settlements start anyway. So uh, you have these uh, settlers come in and take your land and, and build this outpost. And then they slowly start eating more and more and more acres of your land, uh, inch by inch, meter by meter, uh, till it gets to uh, kind of big enough where the government would recognize the settlement, they approve the plans, and then and then Within a year, you would see a full settlement there, and then your land is gone. Are the are the people there displacing mostly farmers? Yes. So mm-hmm. it's, it's between farmers and Bedouin villages. Wow. Uh, they get very strategic about where and how to go about stealing land. So they go... So, by the way, if you look at the map of the West Bank and how all the settlements are placed within the West Bank, they strategically pick where to build these settlements and outposts. So most of them are, so they cut off all the major cities so they can easily block off the north and the south, all the major cities from each other. And then you also have segregated roads for settlers only, Palestinians only. And then top of the hills and mountains, we have, we see all these outposts and settlements and they target all these Bedouin villages and farmers, especially on the outskirts of the city and villages. 
Okay. Well, we're out of time, but I want to ask you how people can find out more about this and how people can get involved. Absolutely. So Leila and I, uh, we're on the board of Al-Hadaf. It's a local organization that uh, works for an advocate for the liberation of Palestine. We've been active since 2018. Um, I always suggest and recommend, highly recommend. So for, for people to uh, get familiar with this and educate uh, themselves is to start by asking questions. Simplest one you can start with is just Googling the word Nakba, N-A-K-B-A. And that's where everything started. That's when the occupation started, colonized Palestine, displaced two-thirds of the Palestinian population out of historic Palestine. So get familiar with the, with the matter, seek education, seek information. And then from there, the next step would be to start calling representative and calling for a ceasefire, um, especially within your local communities and state, starting from your local rep to the senators, uh, to push on the Biden administration to call for a ceasefire to stop this endless funding of genocide militarily and financial support that they essentially have a free checkbook to do what they want, when they want, and however they would want to. Well, I'd recommend uh, also if people want to read uh, Rashid Halidi's book, uh, The Hundred Year War in Palestine. I think it gives you great background. Thank you both very, very much. We've been talking to Suhaib and Leila Asse of Al-Hadaf. I'm Judy Ansel. Do you love community radio and believe in KKFI's mission? Would you like to serve your community by helping lead KKFI into the future? KKFI is always looking for leaders from the Kansas City community to join our board of directors and help guide our organization. Express your interest by applying to be a volunteer at kkfi.org. Together, we can shape the future of Kansas City Community Radio. For over three decades, KKFI has encouraged local artists to share their talents with our listeners over the airwaves. Every Friday from noon to 1 p.m., Midcoast Live presents local artists' live performances for you to hear and experience the wide variety of local music, poetry, and spoken word in our community. That's every Friday at noon, hosted by a different programmer each week, right here on our community radio station, KKFI. I've been waiting for something to happen For a week or a month or a year With the blood in the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war And there's a shadow of the men who send the guns to the wars that are fought in places where the business interest runs on the radio talk shows and the TV you hear one thing again and again how the USA stands for freedom and we come to the aid of a friend but who are the ones that we call our friends these governments killing Can't take anymore when they pick up a gun or a brick or a stone.
The second half of our show tonight is titled U.S. Labor Drives Gaza Ceasefire. I'm your host, Michael Savoie. Our musical prelude was Lives in the Balance by Jackson Brown. My guest tonight is the man who championed that effort for the UAW, District 9A Director Brandon Mansella. Thanks, Brandon, for being part of the Heartland Labor Forum. Thanks for having me, Michael. Okie doke. You know, since you led the way as the first major U.S. union to advocate for ceasefire, there's been a sort of avalanche in labor and private sectors. Uh, Tell us how you planted that seed in your executive board and how it matured so quickly. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that um, we, we by no means are the first, well, two, two, two things. We were definitely not the first union to come out for this. We were one of the biggest, if not the biggest at the time, to come out for a ceasefire in Palestine and Israel. But the letter itself was mobilized by, um, you know, the United Electrical Workers, UE, and uh, UFCW Local 3000, which is a, you know, it's a local union, but it's a massive union within the UFCW uh, National. Um, And UE is a historically uh, militant, internationalist, progressive, democratic union in the ways that the UAW um, has not been. (laughs) Um, It's always been an example. Um, It's never, um, you you know, it hasn't been in the AFL-CIO. It's a union that I think stands out for its history. It's a much smaller union than the UAW, but it's been a proud champion of internationalist causes and solidarity with oppressed people worldwide, including um, and especially uh, the Palestinian uh, people. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that, um, you know, I, I appreciate the, 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 the credit there, but it, it really, the credit does not lie with me um, or Sean Fain or any of the executive board members, but it, it, it came from a, a wave of, uh, of um, organizing and activism on the ground by many of our members, especially in regions six and nine A, those are the West Coast and East Coast regions. Those are also two of the younger regions with a younger membership and uh, the membership coming out of higher education, the legal services sector, um, the non-traditional UAW sectors, in other words. Um, But I also think that the UAW was primed to take such a position, given the fact that not only all this growth and new young uh, organizing, um, but also because... Um, we are historically rooted and headquartered in Detroit, in Michigan, and and we have many members in places like Dearborn with a high uh, mm-hmm. uh, membership in um, Palestinian and Arab American communities, right? So the question of Palestine, of um, the history of the occupation, um, is is one that's very close to home. Um, to a lot of UAW members, um, and at the very least, the communities where our plants and local unions are in Michigan. So everyone knows about this. This was unavoidable as a topic. If labor, if other labor unions or national unions haven't spoken out on this or said anything, it's not because they don't know about it, I promise you. It's because they're choosing not to say something um, about this intentionally at this point, because uh, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, and we can get into that. But uh, the most important thing to know is that, you know, you, you can't ignore what's happening right now in, in Gaza and, and the West Bank. 
um, and um, therefore, you know, labor as both, um, you know, what I would say is the conscience of the United States, right? The the the, the movement um, that is supposed to be pointing out the injustices and inequalities that exist in our country and our society, um, but also as a uh, you know as a, as a structural powerful force, right? A block of not only voters, right? In many ways, we're always presented as a voting block, right? The union movement and their vote, but as as labor, right? As labor power, you know, we have the ability to um, not only speak about things, but also do something about it. You know, ultimately, our our leverage is our strike power. Um, and while I think we are far away at this point from the level of consciousness um, that would be able to intervene. Um, um, in terms of like strikes, political strikes and that kind of thing, on especially on, on internationalist issues, the whole point of the labor movement is that you're building solidarity with workers around the world. And uh, I've said this over and over again, but for too long, U.S. unions have been completely backwards, if not you know ignorant, on issues of of Palestine and Israel. And now is the time to actually uh, do. Um, the education, do the consciousness raising, engage with members who have already been doing work on this, um, and uh, build from there. Um, and it's going to be a process. It's not the you know it's not the timeline of ending this genocide urgently, right? The, this kind of slower work of organizing in within the labor movement, which tends to be slower. Um, the UAW reform movement is is a testament to the decades of work that went into that, right? It wasn't just we had an election and Sean Fain won. <laughs> it was a long effort by generations of activists and organizers on the ground to pull this off. Um, and I think similarly, I think, um, you know, making the labor movement one that is a force for international uh, labor solidarity and not just our bread and butter issues is, a, is another kind of step. Um, but politically speaking at the moment, you know, I think, you know, politicians know where we stand. Uh, you know, uh, the labor movement knows where we stand, and we've been an, an, an outright um, and outspoken advocate for a ceasefire since we took that stand on December 1st. Um, and, uh, you know, we did the right thing, I think. Um, and um, since then, a lot of unions have come out um, with their own statements and their own uh, formulation of uh, solidarity beyond what we just signed on to from the UE letter. And that's great to see, because I think the whole point is to build um, momentum and pressure from within the labor movement. So, And certainly it's been building very well. The recent uh, charges brought to the International Court of Justice by South Africa was certainly encouraging to me. This weekend, we've seen literally uh, hundreds of thousands of people on the street worldwide uh, participating in a ceasefire demand. So, Brenda, could you tell our listeners why it's important that labor have a role in this activity? Yeah, I think, uh, well, a, a few reasons, right? I mean, uh, I, I spoke to these a, a bit already, but I think just on the grounds of the moral issue at hand, uh, I think it, it, it would be really hard for me and for other, uh, you know, uh, labor leaders that I, that I know who care about this issue to look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know, we didn't say anything uh, during uh, one of the greatest atrocities of the 21st century so far, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in many ways, uh, on its own, what's happening in Palestine right now is absolutely horrendous. 
And uh, what worries me even more is just how uh, Palestine is also a sign of what can come for more and more people around the world as climate catastrophe intensifies the inequalities we see in terms of wealth inequality can uh, you know deepen um, and all new forms of apartheid are rising around the world with the rise of far right fascist authoritarian regimes and, 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 and leaders and movements. Um, so in many ways, what we're seeing right now in, in Gaza could be uh, the future if we don't do something about it for so many more people in so many different continents across the world, including amongst, you know, migrant populations and uh, marginalized people within the United States and other, you know, uh, you know, you know, so-called advanced economies, right? Um, and what, you know, who is on the front line of stopping things like this? Um, you know, it's especially as democracies are crumbling and the vote is, you know, constantly under threat. It's the labor movement, right? It's because the labor movement's whole project, right? In the various forms the labor movement has developed, um, it's not like, oh, just vote and things will take care of itself. It's you can do something about this as a worker, as a union, as a collective of organized workers. Um, and therefore, you know, the political power that we have, the labor power that we have, the ability to, uh, you know, capture, um, you know, national attention when we're acting mil militantly and, um, are you know raising expectations that that is an incredible weight um, and responsibility that falls on labor's shoulders um, and I think that's what that's what the project is here it's building up consciousness amongst more and more American working families and working people about um, our role as a country around the world our, our uh, you know the same elites that we have um, in this country, you know, the billionaire class, the, the 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 millionaires who make all the decisions, are also the same ones making the same kinds of investments and um, decisions about you know where to send weapons, where to start wars, et cetera. Right. So geopolitically, um, you know, um, the the same people who own our companies are the same people calling the shots worldwide. Right. So we can't just isolate ourselves as national labor movements. We have to be working with other folks around the world who believe in justice and solidarity. Um, and, you know, as, as, as a union, you know, we, uh, alongside many other unions around the country, um, you know, we made a deal with the military industrial complex in the mid 20th century, uh, during and after, uh, World War II, right? Um, the idea was, you, you know, Roofer's arsenal of democracy, the 500 planes a day, that whole model, like, we're going to fight fascism, we're going to fight the Nazis, we're going to, you know, we're going to win the war, uh, through, uh, you know, a concerted uh, labor effort with uh, the Roosevelt government, right? And since then, it's been nothing but let's continue the war machine. Um, and we've never gotten back to the critical conversation about what is this all for, right? Um, and unfortunately, you know, our members, our workers, they don't make the calls on what they're building for what and for what reason and to who and why. <laughs> but... Um, but nonetheless, they're liable. It's the tragedy of the U.S. economy and the military economy is that, you know, it makes us dependent on this war machine in order to sustain working families' lives, right? Um, and I think that's another aspect of this that we're looking to, to work on. We're, we're just thinking about, you know, what would it mean not to have 
a war dependent economy, but a, a peace one, right? And how good, how much good would that do for the rest of the world, right? Um, my colleague in Region Nine, Dan Vicente, always says he's like he's got a lot of military uh, uh, defense industry membership in his region. He's like, listen, he's like, I believe in a defense industry, um, and I believe a defense industry that um, you know is doing the proper work of what the word defense means. What I don't believe in is this industry for massacres. Um, and I don't think anyone in their right mind, no matter where you work, uh, should believe that what I build should be used for massacres. And so that's another whole uh, arm of this project is also un untangling the, the relationship between U.S. labor and uh, U.S. militarism abroad, which at the end of it, you know, goes back to um, the... Uh, the whole spirit of, I think, uh, of King's legacy, Martin Luther King's legacy, was to uh, attack the three, uh, the triplets, he would call them, right? Um, racism, extreme military, um, extreme materialism, and militarism abroad. Um, so, you know, having uh, just recently heard uh, Sean Fain's speech at uh, the MLK Day uh, event in Detroit, um, he tied our union's history to Martin Luther King's life and just saw all the parallels from, you know, be, you know, have, having basically been born in the South. And he pointed out that the sit-down strikes were actually not born in Flint, Michigan. They were born in the South, in Atlanta, <laughs> and moved their way to Michigan, right? Um, and also, you know, our, our union's ties to the civil rights movement and how much we advanced and materially supported the civil rights movement through the Vietnam War and our opposition. Eventually, it took a while, but eventually we came out against the Vietnam War and uh, Walter Rufer, our, our historic president, started speaking about you know the peace dividend and the peace, uh, the peacetime economy, um, and so ultimately, I would say, um, in you know our support for the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, you know the UAW and the labor movement, but especially you know us speaking as the UAW, uh, we've spoken out and acted um, in situations of extreme injustice in. The United States and around the world. And I think this is in keeping with that. Um, it's part of, I think, the revival of the UAW has been, you know, I think the ceasefire is part of that uh, revival of the UAW, reform of the UAW. Um, and in many ways, that's like recovering those histories, um, which have been lost due to the UAW's, you know, it's its own internal issues and corruption and, and so many other things. So, um, that's what we're working on. And it's going to be a project that's going to take a lot of work and time and effort from many people, but um, we're committed to it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Brandon, I've always felt that uh, the role of labor is so much more than just uh, uh, assuring wages and working conditions. It's the overall quality of life of working class people. So, you know, and of course this, this, uh, concerns of this nature are very much a part of that quality of life. So I am so happy to see yours is the major. And I recognize that uh, UE was uh, probably the first, but certainly it's, it's good to see UAW man leading the fold. And I hadn't made the connection between the, the largest uh, perhaps Palestinian community in the country being there in Dearborn, Michigan. I think it's so, actually in Jersey, but, um, you know, we have representation in Jersey, too. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, listen, I want to I want to thank you for coming on our Heartland Labor uh, uh, program today. And I suppose uh, uh, 
we might ask in closing, as this collective consciousness of uh, not just labor in America, but working class period is growing, uh, we're moving toward uh, what I see as a critical mass. In other words, uh, if enough people have the consciousness to realize how included we are in this whole world picture, uh, that will make us more effective. Uh, do you see it moving in that positive direction? This uh, toward a, a critical mass of consciousness that could could then uh, become the voice of working class people. Um, I think I think we're we have a mass in the sense of if you ask most Americans how they feel about the war in Palestine and a ceasefire, they would agree that there should be a ceasefire. I mean, polling right now suggests that that's what that is, right? Um, I don't think this is the only reason, but I think one of the major reasons Biden's administration and his reelection is in jeopardy is because of this, right? Young workers, uh, workers of color, um, you know, key states like Michigan with high Arab American uh, population, that's, that's all at stake right now. So, you know, uh, we've had our own issues with, with President Biden on the domestic labor front. Uh, but, you know, to his credit, he has stepped up since then. And we have, you know, he visited our picket line. He worked with us during the negotiations to assure a just transition to electric vehicle work. You know, uh, we led the way and we the strike is what won us that. But I think I think he understood that his uh, our endorsement, um, if it were to come, would be in jeopardy if he didn't uh, step up during that strike and uh, basically take up our 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 slogans, our plan, our demands as his own uh, to the companies. And uh, you know we know how the break the labor board has been under his administration. Julie Soon, the Department of Labor, has also been solid, um, and that's all at risk right now. That's all in jeopardy. Why? Um, you know, for many reasons, but I think a key one is the ceasefire. Right, the fact that. Um, not only is he rejecting calls for peace and an end to the to the bombing, but he's actively aiding and abating it by sending more arms, by sending more um, support um, to 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 Israel at the moment to continue its campaign against Gaza. And um, I'm telling you that that is just the, the a, a profound shame and a tragedy. Um, so right now, you know, I think to reach that mass of workers and citizens of this country and people of conscience in this country actively organized. I think labor is gonna play a huge role in that. But I think also the social movements and the organizations on the ground that have been leading protests, I think just a lot has to happen, right? I think over the last two decades, especially since Occupy, you know, the US left has gotten very good at the mass protests and the mass demonstration. And I think the turn to labor is a result of that, right? Um, especially, you know, young workers, people like myself going into the labor movement and, and, and finding ways to organize our workplaces and be a part of these unions, reforming them. But we have to do more of that on so many different scales, right, from the labor movement to other kinds of organizations. Um, and I think it's through organizing, right, through organizations specifically and not just mass protests, that is where you build up the capacity and power to make change in this country and exert pressure from electeds, from executives, from uh, within your own unions, right, um, to make change. Because it, it won't just happen through protests alone, even though we need, absolutely need protests at the moment um, to show just how mass-based 
this demand for a ceasefire is. Hello, this is Mary Ario for Safety First. First, Mind Safety Agency submits silica standard for final White House review from the Confined Space newsletter at jordanbarab.com slash confined space for January 18th. On January 17th, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, or MSHA, finally reached the last stage of its silica standard, White House Review. Silica dust created by drilling through solid rock has been shown to cause particularly severe cases of black lung disease called progressive massive fibrosis, or PMF. The MSHA standard would follow OSHA's silica standard issued in 2016 that applied primarily to construction and foundry workers. The agency will attempt to issue a final standard before the end of April. If the final standard is issued after late April, April, a potential Republican Congress and president can use the Congressional Review Act to repeal the standard next year. According to a recent study, nearly 1,200 cases of progressive massive fibrosis, a severe and debilitating form of black lung disease that affects coal miners, have been identified at U.S. health clinics in recent years. Located primarily in the Appalachian region of the U.S., the clinics provide screening, medical care, and education to coal miners and their families. Published January 4th in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the study adds to the growing science showing that PMF, once considered to have been nearly eradicated, is resurging among U.S. miners and especially young miners. Next, heavily used turnout gear may expose firefighters to cancer-causing chemicals. From www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com for January 31st. Wear and tear in firefighter protective clothing may lead to an increased release of chemicals linked to cancer, according to a new study from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Cancer is a leading cause of death among firefighters. NIST researchers tested 21 textiles used in turnout gear, including jackets and pants, for 53 types of polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, PFAS. Tests included abrasion, heat, laundering, and weathering, which was simulated using ultraviolet radiation and high humidity. Abrasion of the material reached more PFAS, known as forever chemicals, because they break down more slowly over time, across all textiles. Weathering and heat was linked to an increase in PFAS for outer shell materials. Laundering garments had little effect. The firefighter community has raised concerns about PFAS and turnout gear, but before these studies, there was very little data that addressed these concerns. Study co-author Rick Davis, a NIST chemist, said in a press release, Based on these studies, we can confidently say that more than 20 types of PFAS might be present in firefighter gear and that the amount and type of PFAS vary depending on the type of textile used and the amount of stress it has been subjected to. Finally, NIOSH 3D Printing Guide, aimed at small business, from www.safetyandhealthmagazine.com for January 31st. Employers whose workers use 3D printers in non-industrial settings can take steps to limit employee exposure to emissions from heated 
filaments, polymers, and powders, NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health says. Because 3D printing is an emerging industry with relatively short history, the agency notes, it is difficult to know the potential occupational health outcomes stemming from exposures to these emissions. After examining emissions in work environments and chamber studies, the agency recently published a guide to address concerns from employees in small businesses, schools, and libraries, and other workplaces. You can find the guide at www.cdc.gov slash NIOSH under publication number 2024-103. Tips include train workers on 3D printing hazards and available controls, limit worker access to essential workers, use printer materials with lower emissions, capture chemical emissions by using enclosures and ventilation, keep as much distance as possible between the worker and printer and reduce time spent near printers in operation, clean work areas between print jobs or daily, provide an emergency eyewash station in the immediate vicinity of printing processes that include alkaline chemicals or other solvents, and follow manufacturer recommendations for the use of personal protective equipment. This is Mary Ario for Safety First. And that's it for the show. Uh, we don't have time for the calendar. It'll be on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. Just one item. Shut it down for Palestine. Rally sponsored by Free Palestine KC. Saturday, February 3rd, 1 to 3 p.m. at the Plaza Fountain, Mill Creek Park. And that's it for the show. Tune in next week. Our show is, uh, oh my gosh, I don't have the list of the show. Oh, well. <laughs> um, tune in anyway. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Tune in, go find other labor radio shows at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. And stay tuned for uh, Next Step Forward with Jasmine Jones. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. Cause we are the working class and that's the place to be He said if I were Frank Sinatra I'd pull strings And through political pull you'd be on top of the glorified garbage You would be the dog.